0: Pray with me, Father, you have been faithful to us. And so we call upon that again. We call upon your loving kindness once again. We call upon your mercy and compassion to us once again. And we pray that you would give us a word that would sustain us, that would empower us, that would grant to us comfort and assurance, that would help us in the life that we live, that we can continue to live in faith. So we pray that even now you would overcome any resistance we might have to hearing this, that you would take away any distractions, that you would cause Uh, your scripture to be clear to us. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11, please. I want to read the first nine verses. Joshua chapter 11, please. Hear the word of God. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Madan, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Ashoff, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphorth-Dor uh, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzvah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire." So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sudan and the Mizra off Maim and eastwards as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to them, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots Uh, With fire. Now, as we've been working our way through uh, this book of Joshua these days, uh, uh, we now find ourselves in chapter 11, last Sunday, chapter 9, a bit of 10. I'm going to go back a little bit to 10 uh, this morning, but I think this uh, incident in chapter 11 captures uh, what it is that we're about Uh, this morning. Again, another battle, no surprise to us. Just by way of review of history, you know that God promised Abraham this land. The land that they're in. And yet he told to Abraham it would be a while before the people, his descendants, would settle in this land. In fact, they would go and before they would settle in this land, they would be aliens. They would be be slaves in another country for 400 years. And then when the iniquity of the Amorites or the Canaanites was complete... then they would come back into the land. And of course, the reason that God waited until the iniquity of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the people that were living in that land was complete was because He was going to bring judgment upon them because their sin was complete. There would be no redeeming of them. The sin was complete and judgment would come upon them. And so we mustn't think that these battles fought by Israel in Canaan were barbaric. They were not. It was the judgment of God. Simply foreshadowing the judgments is going to come, and a day will come when Jesus returns. That judgment will come. It will be like this in some sense, but more complete, and more devastating, and eternal. So to think this to be barbaric, is to misunderstand the righteousness of God. He was being righteous here, God was. Jesus came, of course, in his first advent, he came to save. When he comes in his second advent, he comes to judge and bring fullness, fulfillment. And so you get a sense that when the iniquity of humanity is complete, then Jesus will return. And that judgment will come. Israel's not being barbaric here. They're carrying out the judgment of God. And in the midst of that, will receive their inheritance of this land. Now we ask, and we've been asking, and we've been answering this question. It's an important one to ask and answer. We've been asking the question, why is it then that Israel themselves is not destroyed and not judged? And the answer is because God has been pleased to accept the sacrifice of another for them. At the Passover, he was God accepted the sacrifice, the death of another, an animal in that case, a lamb in that case, an unblemished lamb in that case, for them, so that they could live. Of course, this shouts to us of Jesus. We know that. We know that he's the very one who has come. He's the very one whose life has been given for us, that we might live so that when... Jesus returns when his second advent happens, when he comes to judge, those who believe in Jesus, those for whom his blood covers and pays for their sins, they'll be judged, forgiven. And all the rest will be condemned. Okay? So that's what this is looking towards. I just say that by way, it's important, I think, as we read about these violent battles where everyone, killed. you If you read before or would read after this, city's burned. We need to put it in the context of the righteousness of God. So what do we have today? Today we have a battle being fought with the northern people. In chapters 9 and 10, especially chapter 10, it was the southern part of the land of Canaan where kings came together against Joshua and Israel and, and they defeated them. And now the northern kings are doing the same. They're all coming together uh, as in this epic sort of battle. I mean, if you could, we could only picture this, it would, it would be like one of those scenes in, in movies, uh, like the old movies where. Hordes of, of, of military people, of, of warriors are coming against another. As far as their eyes could see, if you're looking out uh, over the horizon, all you could see is dots of people just everywhere. I mean, that's what this looks like. That's how many uh, were coming. The scriptures say as, no, as many as the sand of the seashore. Just a, a, a number, too great accounts. And you have to understand that the nation of Israel wasn't that big compared to all of these who were coming. And so amazingly, and this is consistent with what we've seen in all of this book, amazingly, God comes to Joshua in the midst of this, where these, these, these military warriors are coming against him, too many to count, and God comes to him very rationally and says to Joshua, don't be afraid. And you think, how can you say that? How can you say, don't be afraid, when not only there are warriors who are too many to count, but they're technologically advanced for their day. They have all of these great horses. This group of people in, 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 in this part of Canaan were known for their great warrior horses and their chariots. And they were numerous. And so they would be the best equipped army that you could ever imagine. And here they were. And so God comes to Joshua and says, I know you don't have any chariots. And I know you don't have any horses. And I know you don't have that many people. But don't be afraid. Oh, how in the world can he come to him with that kind of command? Not to be afraid in the midst of that. Well, we see verse six and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. He said, and, and they're going to be so slain, essentially, you know, so much so not a threat that you're going to be able to walk in and hamstring their horses and burn all their chariots. You don't have to worry about any of that. You're going to, they're going to be so given to you that at the end of the battle, you're going to be able to go in and see their horses and just destroy everything, destroy all of their armament, destroy all of their weaponry, destroy all of their technology, if you will. Uh, so that will never be a threat to you. So don't, don't worry about that. So he says, don't be afraid. You see, You see, the reason that Joshua could not fear that he could be strong and courageous, as we have read about him, is because God made promises to him. God made promises to him. He said, I'll be with you, and I'll protect you, and I'll keep you. And in essence, I'll fight for you. I'm going to slay all of these uh, enemies uh, for you. You see, it's the very promises of God like this that keep us from fear. The world is bigger than we are. Everything is bigger than we are, it seems. And no matter how much technology we have, and how much medicine we have, and how much wisdom we have, and, and all of that, we know that we're vulnerable All the time. We're vulnerable to crossing when we cross the street. Something bigger than us could hit us. When we get in an airplane, we know that thing could fall from the ground. It happens. We're vulnerable to those kinds of conditions. We're vulnerable to weather. We're vulnerable to the politics of the day. We're vulnerable to the market. We're vulnerable to to health. We can wake up one day feeling just fine. Go to the doctor and find something in our body that's there that can kill us that we didn't even know was there. All kinds of things can happen. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable in the context of relationships, aren't we? We think a relationship is going well. Every husband here knows that. (laughs) And we find out it's not going so well. And we don't even know why. Picked up a book the other day. The title is Something to the Effect of the Problems that Men Have. And I'm interested to know that men need a book to tell us the problems that we have. It was written by a man. I'm sure his wife told him. Uh, what to pretty much right. Uh, we're vulnerable to all kinds of things. Things that we don't even know are out there, but we're vulnerable to them in epic kinds of proportions. And God comes to us and says, don't be afraid. And we wonder, on what basis does he say that? And the reason he says that is because he will be with us. A psalm that I love Quote, probably at least weekly if not daily at times in my own life is Psalm number 46 because it begins with a promise but verse 2 is, is really what captures my attention initially the psalmist writes therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble at its swelling basically the psalmist is saying look Everything that you put your security in, everything that you think is safe and secure, is now falling apart. The mountains, for goodness sake, are falling into the sea. And the sea, therefore, is roaring and foaming. So you've got this horrendous situation happening. You've got the mountains going into the sea, which is a bit disconcerting. And then you have have a tsunami happening. Uh, because the, the the mountains are causing the, the oceans to overflow in tremendous kinds of ways. And so everything is wrong, and the earth is quaking. But that verse says, therefore, we will not fear. We're not even going to be afraid in the midst of that. Why? Because of the promise in verse 1. We read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So if God's going to be helping us, even in the worst case scenario, even when everything is falling apart then we don't have to be afraid. In fact, that little expression that says a very present help can also be translated a well-proven help. That is, if you just think about it, if you just go back, one of the reasons why it's so important for us to know the whole Bible, even the Old Testament, and all these Old Testament stories, is because that's our history. That's our family. Those are stories that are retained for us events in history that have been written down for us so we can know them and look back and say, see, God was with us. And it is no exaggeration to say, God was with us when he's with the people of God. And the same thing that a child might say in his own family that God was with us in our family, we can say God was with us in the days of Joshua, in the days of David, in the days of Abraham. We need to know these things. God is with us. How is he with us? He says it's a well-proven thing. And for Joshua, it was well-proven what it meant for God to be with him. There was a time as the Israelites left Egypt, gone through the Red Sea, were working their way to Mount Sinai. So very early, it was way before all the problems happened, uh, there was a battle. Exodus chapter 17. There was a battle. And so Moses said to Joshua, even back then, I want you to take the people. I want you to go fight this battle. And when he said that to Joshua, he then went up on the hill and he began to pray. And when he, was, he would lift his hands in prayer, and as he was praying, Israel would be winning the battle. But when he got tired and he, his arms began to fall, which was an indication that his prayers were starting to fall off, then Israel would begin to lose. Fortunately, he had with him two priests, Aaron and Hur. Her her was a he, but her anyway. Aaron and her. And when his arms would begin to droop, they would prop them up so he could pray. And thus Israel won the battle. Well proven. When God is with you, Joshua, you win. Your enemies are defeated. And so then it would be nothing when he goes out with the spies, Joshua, Uh, when they're in Kadesh Barnea and they go out to spy in the land, For Joshua to see these giants and come back and say, God's with us, we can defeat them. How would he know that? Because God had been a well-proven help to him in a great time of trouble. And so he says, this isn't too much for God. If God is said to go in here, we can go in there because he is with us. And then when God comes to Joshua and says, Listen, I want you to be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give all of your enemies over to you. Whatever you place your feet will be yours. It'd be no surprise that Joshua could embrace that and say, all right, I won't be afraid. I'll be strong and courageous in the midst of this. Why? Because you, God, are a well-proven help in time of trouble. Just as a little sermonette for us Christianettes. Just a little aside. We need to keep track of God in our own lives. We mustn't let things that God does in the context of our lives be forgotten. We need to keep going on them. Now, if the last thing you can remember is 40 years ago, then there are issues, right? But we need to keep track of them. We need to be looking for them. Where is God at work? Context of our lives. And don't don't miss the obvious. Don't miss, I prayed yesterday. Oh, God, is work working me? to call me, to pray to him, and I do it. Don't miss the obvious when you read the scripture and understand it. Don't miss the obvious when you, when you hear about the gospel of Christ and it thrills your soul. That's a work of God in your life. Keep track of all of these things. Refer to them often. Yes, he really is with me. Yes, he is a very proven help in times of trouble. That's why we have a community of people, so we can share these things with each other. So that when God works on your behalf, I can say, God works for us. And I can learn from your situation. And so when you're going some, through something that perhaps I haven't, and God is at work for you in the midst of that, and I see you walk by faith, and I see you in the midst of all of that, I can say, Look, God is working for us. So that then that goes into my storehouse of, of understanding and faith. Because the promises of God are given to us to build our faith so that we will trust in Him more. And He's given to us great promises. He says that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a promise that is. To build faith upon, to say, I know that my sins are forgiven. Why? Because God said so. Why did He say it? Because Christ did it. Why did He do it? Because God said He was going to. And so we see on the very word of God, our faith increases. What I read to you this morning is the declaration of, of the gospel uh, from Romans in chapter 8. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's given to us Christ. And now he's promised, I will give you all the things that you need. I will give you every good thing. And we say, well, well how, how do I know I can trust you? And I think God shakes his proverbial head and says, I gave you Christ. If I would give you Christ, why wouldn't I give you everything? Am I not a well-proven help in time of trouble? Didn't I prove myself to you when Jesus came? Didn't that convince you that, that everything that you need I would give? If I'm going to give my own son, if I'm going to sacrifice him For you? Isn't that proof? Can't you bank on that? Can't you live off that very sentence for the rest of your life? He says he cares for us. He said, how do we know? He said, well, look at the flowers and look at the birds. Aren't they pretty? And aren't the birds well fed? They're almost nothing to me. You're everything to me. Well, I care for you. Can't you trust me? Haven't I proven that? Don't you see it? In the midst of all that. He says, I'll never leave you. And I'll never forsake you. Why these promises? So it increases. So it grows up our faith in Him. Our trust in Him. But why? So that then we can sit by, pop our feet up, and drink iced tea all day long. <laughs> no so that we can get after it. Because the battle's right before us. You see, just because God says to them he's going to fight for them, doesn't it all mean that he's going to fight without them? Just because he says, I'm going to deliver them slain to you by tomorrow, which is a pretty big call on God's part with all these people. But he says, says, I'm going to do this It doesn't mean then that Joshua gets to go and sit in his little lazy boy and watch it all unfold. The way that he's going to do it, God is, is with them, by them, through them. They're not to be idle, but their faith is to be grown up by the promises of God to such a degree that when God says, now I want you to go fight that whole horde of people, too many to count, they'll actually do it. If they didn't believe that God was with them, my suspicion is they'd run the other way. But he says, now I've got to tell you, I gotta, I'm a well-proven help to you. I've proven myself to you. Now, here's a big one, and now I want you to go. And I promise you, you'll be victorious. But you need to go, and you need to face them, and, and you need to fight this battle. And so, they take up and go. We see this all throughout, uh, especially uh, in Joshua chapter 10, for instance. Verse 14 of Joshua 10, we read this. The very end of a battle, it says, In the middle of a battle, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. See, in the southern campaign, what took place is, God says, Go after them, you'll win. Well, how was God going to fight for them? Well, he fought for them in a variety of ways. He fought for them by, by, by his providence because hailstones so big fell from heaven that killed more than, 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 than the armies of Joshua killed. So, so by God's providence, his circumstance, he moved in such a way through nature... And then he also moved through wisdom because he had told Joshua throughout that you need to meditate on my word day and night, all the time. Don't let it depart from your mouth. That is, always have my word in your mouth. Always have my word in your mind. Be characterized by it so much so that you'll have great success. That is, so much so that you'll always act wisely. And so not only in his providence, his circumstances, but also in the wisdom that he gave to Joshua. But then too, in his great power. He, he stopped the day for Joshua. Joshua said, I need a little more time today to get this done. And whether he stopped it in such a way to give him more darkness, or whether he stopped it in such a way to give him more light, it's difficult to tell, frankly, from the passage. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, we could argue about that. But then wouldn't you stop back and say, but but, but but he stopped it. I don't care when it was, whether it was 4 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He did it. He was fighting for Joshua. But we know that even though God was fighting for Joshua, Joshua and his men were fighting too. Notice verse 29 of chapter 10. Then Joshua and all of Israel uh, with him passed on from uh, Makeda to Libna and fought against Libnah. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm saying, God, if you're going to fight for me, why then am I fighting? You're pretty good at this, God. You're better than I am. You're stronger and all of that. You can handle this on your own, I'm sure. So why am I fighting? Because it glorifies God when we fight. Because we're fighting by faith. Because we're going after this by faith in him. We'd be cowards otherwise. But the reason that we're in it is because God is with us. And by our very participation, we're saying God is with us. And there we go, to bring him glory. Verse 31, they fight. Verse 34, they're fighting. Verse 38, they're fighting. Now, the question for us is, was God fighting or was Israel fighting? And the answer is yes. Exactly. Now, the question is, who was more important in the fight, God or Israel? Trick question. Two answers. One is both. God was not going to do this, it appears, without them. But we know that even if they did it, if they did it without God, they would lose. They've proven that. But we mustn't think simply that God is the only one important here. He's the important one, but he wasn't going to do it without them. Had they not gone up, they wouldn't have defeated the enemy. But they would go up, why? Because they had faith. Why? Because God had given it to them. How? By making promises for them to believe and cling to. And you see, it's perfectly reasonable for the people of God to fight enemies bigger than themselves and to fight enemies bigger than themselves with great confidence. Why? Because God has said, I'm with you. It made perfect sense. It would have been irrational, unreasonable, unthinking for Joshua to turn and say, there's no way we can beat these people. There's no way we can defeat because there's just way too many of them and they've got horses and chariots and they're really good at this and they're going to defeat us. That would have been completely unreasonable by any knowing, thinking person. Why? Because God said, I'll be with you, and I'm going to do this. And it's irrational, it's unthinking to question the word of God. And so here they went. And you see, isn't that true for us as well? Isn't it unreasonable? And I'm smiling when I say this, because I I know that we live unreasonably, don't we? Isn't it unreasonable for us to question the word of God? And God says, don't gossip. Oh, but it seems to make a lot more sense <laughs> to tell this little bit of information that I know to everybody. Don't lose your temper. But, but, but it makes so much sense to just let it fly. Don't lust. Oh, but it seems to bring so much satisfaction. It's unreasonable for us. Unthinking, really. To doubt the word of God in our lives. He's with us. And he tells us he's with us so that we will, in fact, get on with the battle to give us confidence. Because he is at work by way of his providence. He is at work by way of giving us wisdom. He is at work by way of empowering us to go on. Faith always leads to action. You know the passage in James chapter two that faith uh, without works is dead. The way James puts it is like this, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? Uh, the answer to that, of course, is no, it's not real faith. He's using faith in a funny kind of way there, a bit ambiguously. But saying that's not really saving faith if if it isn't accompanied by action, if it doesn't lead you to anything, if it just makes you sit down and look at the stars, then it really isn't the kind of faith that saves, because the kind of faith that saves us is the kind of faith that gets us going. Because we're trusting, we're believing in God, and we're moving out in these things. So he gives an illustration that makes perfect sense. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly and clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, he's saying, listen, if you see somebody who's cold and hungry, and you say to them, pat them on the head and say, oh man, I really feel for you. I really wish that you were warm and you had food, and we don't give them any food or clothing. Doesn't that make our words a bit insincere? Wouldn't you question that person's word? Wouldn't you say, I don't really think they care if that person's warm or filled, because they just sort of, that's just words to them. And James is saying, we must be very careful that when we say we have faith, we really do. Because when we say we have faith, what that means is, in some sense, we're going to get after it. We're going to be, it's, going to, it's going to move us to some kind of action with God. And the action with God that we see in the context of our lives begins, of course, with recognizing who God is and who we are and seeing our sins. And falling before him and confessing that to him. And that, of course, is an ongoing transaction. Oh, the initial salvation isn't an ongoing transaction. That gets done as we come to faith. But, But seeing our sin and falling on our face before him, confessing, that's an action of faith. Believing that I can express and acknowledge my sin before God and he really isn't going to hold that against me. That's an act of faith. Not trying to cover it up before him is an act of faith, saying, "I can express my sin to God, I confess it to him, and be sorry for it, and he will indeed forgive me, and then, by his strength, I can turn away from my sin and then, to move on because you see the battle is, is right before us, the scripture says there 's a battle with the world." the world system against us trying to move us away from Christ. There's the temptation of the flesh within trying to move us away from Christ. There's the devil himself and all of his demons trying to move us away from Christ. And yet in the midst of all that, in the midst of all that battle, we know that we're to walk as Christ walked. We're to bring glory to God. We're to love each other. We're to be faithful to God. We're to be patient and kind and joyful in all things. We're to be pure in our our sexual relationships. We're to uh, be people who are able, uh, as husbands and wives, to love each other—husbands to love their wives, as Christ has loved the church; as um, uh, wives, to respect our husbands. Uh, we're to live like that, and not only that—that there's a mission to which God calls us. We're to be salt and light in the world. We are by our very presence in the world to make an impact upon Him, upon people for the sake of the gospel. The scripture says that we're to live in such a way that people should see the hope that we have and ask us about it. The scripture says that we're to be the aroma of life to those who are being saved, the aroma of death to those who are perishing. I mean, that's what we're called to as a people. That, that's what it's to be in. And, and we have to say, who's competent for that? Who can, who can really live like that? And then he says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Meaning, I want people to be identified with Christ and this gospel. And that's what you're to do. And, and we look up and we say, there are hordes of people. And none of them care about this. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, just like we were. And when we say just like we were, then God says, Aren't I then a well proven help in time of trouble? And He gets us every time. When we meet people who are disinterested in the gospel, God just sort of scratches his head and says, uh, 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 uh. Why are you interested in the gospel? Aren't I fighting for you? Aint I more powerful even than their unbelief? Am I not more powerful than their resistance to the gospel? Can't I overcome that? So he says, go. And how do we do that? Well, we trust him. Sunday school teachers have to trust every single Sunday. Are these little children going to listen to me? And it isn't just the little children. They're teenagers. They're adults in Sunday school classes. Are they really going to listen? Are they really going to get it? Am I really going to get it as I listen to this word? And as we care for one another, and as we care for people in the community, do you ever feel weaker than when you're sitting with someone who's just gone through a desperate loss? Do you ever feel weaker than that? And think, what am I going to say? Do you ever feel weaker than when you're sitting with someone who has just been in a devastatingly horrible relationship? And you think, what, 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 can, I, what can I say? And then we need to be reminded God says, listen, I'm with you. Trust, I'll move circumstances if circumstances need to be moved. Trust, I'll give you wisdom. If you haven't any in this situation, trust that I'll be able, by my power, to slay thousands. Not to take any thunder away by the time we get to Joshua chapter 23. By the time we get there, you'll have forgotten I'd said this. Joshua chapter 23, verse 9. As a summary of what God has done, he says, "...for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations." And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. And you might ask, well, how can that be true? And why was that true? And the answer is, one man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. And that's why we always have to be thinking that when I'm in a desperate situation, when I'm in a situation that's over my head, and I hate to tell you this, which is all the time, Life is a situation over our heads. Doing battle with the world is a situation that's over our heads. Doing battle with the flesh, the sinful nature that's in us, is over our heads. Doing battle with the devil is over our heads. Evangelizing the world is over our heads. Knowing what to say in a situation where someone's gone through a desperate loss is over our heads. Knowing how to parent children is way over our heads. Learning how to be a child with parents is way over your head. Learning how to live in sexual purity is way beyond us. Learning how to be generous in the times of need is way over us. We may think that these things are doable because we sort of do them, but we mustn't forget they're not. They're way beyond us. And the only way that we can do that, you see, because one word of truth Slays a thousand lies. And one prayer puts to flight a thousand demons, right? And one moment with a person who's hurting, one moment in the name of Christ with a person who's hurting, you see, slays a thousand pains. And we have to believe that in the midst of this, because God is with us, that our very presence is salt and light. Because God is with us, the very hope that we have will be seen and desired by others. Because God is with us, the very word that we have is powerful to bring salvation, to put new life and that, you see, is living by faith. And just to make certain that these people lived by faith in the days of Joshua, he says, when you get their horses, and when you get their chariots, I want you to destroy them. I don't want you to depend on them. I, don't, I want you to take these great horses. If you're a horse animal lover, I can't give the disclaimer that no horses were hurt during this uh, you know, exhibition. But he says, I want you to hamstring the horses. Because if you don't, if you take those horses back with you, you will trust them. And I want you to burn those beautiful, well-equipped chariots. Because if you take them back with you, you'll trust them. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we're to trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That he's the one who's powerful for parents and parenting. He's the one powerful for children to be children who honor their parents. He's powerful enough for husbands to love their wives as he loved as Christ loved the church. He's powerful enough for, for wives to respect their husbands. He's powerful enough for us to be able to sit with people in need and help them. He's powerful enough for us to give even small amounts. And yet it'd be magnified so that He's honored. And glorified through that. He's able through a prayer. To bring great help. One word. To bring salvation. Because he's with us. Let's pray. Father. Pray for me, for us. That we really would believe you. Enable us. Today, on a Sabbath day, on a Sunday, when nothing else need occupy us, because everything else is done. And this is the day that's set aside that we might show that we depend upon you and you alone, not on our work, not on our cleverness, but upon you. So we take this day. So I put it on this day, on this Lord's day, it really could be set aside that we would think on how you've proven yourself to us in Jesus, how you've proven yourself to us and those who went before us, how you've proven yourself to us by your faithfulness, even in our own lives, so that we would trust you. And then we would trust that you will help us and in our obedience that you would magnify everything to prove that it's you that's fighting for us and not we ourselves. And this I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, I will obey the Lord my God. Amen. I could have said, I will trust the Lord my God. That would have been fine. Then you'd have to add the fact that, therefore I'll obey him. So I just started at the end. I will obey the Lord my God. Amen means so be it. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, by his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I will obey the Lord my God. Amen.